Hello, thank you for visiting the podcast of the Vineyard Church in Campbellsville, Kentucky. If you haven't already, feel free to visit our audio archive at vineyardcampbellsville.org or subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. And now here is this week's message brought to you by Senior Pastor Adam Russell. Happy Sunday. Good to see your smiling faces. All right. Uh, it's good to be back with you guys. I was, uh, I was gone last week because I nearly died. Um, Andrew gave me some undisclosed devil. and Yeah, it was awesome. Um, but I'm here, and thanks, uh, thanks be to God that there are people like Ray Hollenbach who can come in and bring the word on, like, 13 hours notice, you know, I just kept thinking, I'll get better, you know, I'll get better, yeah, that didn't get better, all right, hey, if you want to open up your Bibles to Exodus chapter 33, and we're going to begin a new series here at the Vineyard, one that I'm pretty excited about, we're kicking off a new series here at the Vineyard called The Ten of Meeting, uh, and it's based on this passage in Exodus chapter 33, and it's one of my favorite places in the scripture, and we're going to spend four weeks here hanging out as a church family, and one of the things we're going to hopefully do over the next four weeks is we're going to learn how to be tent of meeting people, and that'll mean more to us as we read the scripture and engage with it, but what we're really going to do is we're going to learn how to establish tent of meeting rhythms in our life. We're going to learn how to pray, hopefully. We're going to take some steps, and we're going, to, we're going to begin to just ask God, would you help us to be prayer people? But not just prayer in the sense of a list, and I hope that will become clearer as we go along, but how can, we, how can we meet with God? That's what this series is about. This series is about prayer, and this series is about meeting with the presence of God, and this, uh, this series is ultimately about becoming friends with God. That's what this is about. Uh, a lot of times we, we talk about prayer in the abstract, and it's never... It's never implemented or it's never it's never talked about alongside of the ultimate goal which is always friendship with Jesus that that's that's the goal that's the goal uh, getting things done for God is not the goal uh, talking God into things that uh, we think he doesn't want to do is also not the goal that was a joke by the way uh, it was very funny uh, but a, a lot of people approach prayer like this like how can we talk God into doing things that he'd rather not do, you know? Uh, How can we take our superior sense of mercy and make the Almighty aligned to it, you know? And uh, those are going to be things we try to avoid. And we want to really learn how to be friends, friends with Jesus, friends with Jesus. So let's let's read the scripture. It's going to be our text for the next few weeks. This is Exodus chapter 33. We're going to look at some other stuff as we go along, but these verses are going to be sort of the core that we jump off of, and so I'd encourage you over the next few weeks, you should go spend some time here. I think it's really rich. It says this in verse 7, it was Moses' practice to take the tent of meeting and to set it up some distance from camp, and everyone who wanted to make a request to the Lord would go to the tent of meeting outside the camp. And whenever Moses went out to the tent of meeting, 
all the people would get up and stand at the entrances of their own tents, and they would watch Moses until he disappeared inside. And as he went into the tent, the pillar of cloud would come down and hover at its entrance while the Lord spoke with Moses. And when people saw the cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, they would stand and bow down in front of their own tents. And inside the tent of meeting, the Lord would speak to Moses face to face. That's awesome. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. This is amazing, especially in the context of everything that's just happened, like all the plagues on Egypt, all the deliverance, all this power displays that God has released all over the earth. And the thing we get to here in 33 is that God's real heart is to speak to people face to face like friends. This is wonderful. And then afterward, Moses would return to the camp, but the young man who assisted him, Joshua, the son of Nun, would remain behind in the tent of meeting. Amen. Amen. Well, here's what I want to do by way of foundation this week. This is sort of just a foundational message week. And I want to talk to you about a couple things this morning. I want to talk to you about why it's hard to pray. And then I want to talk to you this morning about why we should pray. Is that okay? So the first, the first thing I want to do is I want to talk to you about some of the reasons why it's hard to pray. Some of the reasons why we struggle having a lifestyle of prayer or meeting with God. Because how many of you have become aware of the fact that if you set your mind and your heart to be a person who meets with God regularly, it gets complicated. Right? And one of the things I don't want to do is I don't want to lead us for the next four weeks into some sessions about prayer or meeting with God and never talk about the elephant that's in the room. And the elephant that's in the room is, it's really hard. It can be really hard. Uh, Here's some of the reasons why it's really hard to pray. Uh, I think the main reason, probably for most of us, the number one struggle in prayer is that we're just riddled with guilt. Now, the guilt we carry with us into prayer is of a couple different varieties. There's the one kind of guilt that says this, and a lot of us in the room are really aware of what I'm talking about. The first kind of guilt that is a real bummer when it comes to being someone who wants to be a prayer person is just the guilt that some of us carry around with us. It's the guilt that some of us carry around with us and that has to do with the fact that we just know we failed God a lot. Like even even after, you know, maybe before you ever met Jesus or or believed in him or put your trust in him, uh, maybe you had this sense that, you know, that you were alienated from God, but but because of the message of the gospel, like the good news came to you and, and like loads of that shame and that guilt went away and you had some confidence before God. But how many of you understand that sometimes guilt doesn't just go away all at once and sometimes it's this, it's this process of learning how to trust Jesus that he really has accepted you. And sometimes there's something about meeting with God and the tenderness and the transparency that actually has to be in place in order to pray, sometimes the transparency that has to be in place 
to the vulnerability that exists between a person and God, sometimes it just gets clouded with guilt. How many of you have ever like tried to pray and the only thing you can think about is what a miserable person you've been? Like even that week. Right? And and you know, like you you have these lofty you have these lofty goals in prayer like you know I really want to touch the Almighty I really want to bring heaven to earth I really want to I really want to move God's heart and the only thing you can think about is the three ways that you've been pretty rotten that week. Yeah, guilt guilt is a killer. Guilt is a killer. Uh, if you don't think it's so, well, just try this on. Uh, how many of you, of husbands, have ever spoken really harshly to your children or maybe to your wife? And then you began to defend your harsh treatment of your, of, your, of your wife and your children. And you know how it is. It's like, you know, you say something you shouldn't have. Your wife is like, man, you shouldn't have said that. And then rather than saying, you know, you're right, please forgive me, you dig in. And you pile on. And then things sort of blow over. And the next morning you open up your Bible to read or to pray. And what's the thing that's hanging on your head and heart? Yeah, guilt can be a killer. Guilt can just be such, such a killer. Can keep us, can keep us from being able to love God. And not only that, but some of us in the room, unfortunately, we live lives with we live lives with so much guilt attached to us that they're they're what I call flinching lives. This isn't everybody in the room, but some of us are living this flinching life toward God. You're just you're so aware of the ways in which you have maybe not measured up that there's just this sense that God is going to smack you, and whenever He does smack you, He's going to take great pleasure in it, you know. And so you just you're kind of like a dog that's been beat in the face. You ever met the dog that's been beat in the head? Just even even when you come to Him to pet Him, He's just sure you're going to smack Him. And even when God shows up in His presence to bless you, you you're, you're just this. There's this sense of what he's really coming to do is he's coming to caress me just so that he can get me close enough to crush me. Yeah, your guilt, man, it's terrible. And then when you add on top of our many and sometimes various failures and character flaws, there's also like things we just failed to do, like the failure to read your Bible or to pray. So you're, you feel guilty because you, you maybe haven't been a great person. And then you feel doubly guilty because you didn't pray every day like super Christians and you didn't read your Bible every single day. And so there just becomes this thing of like anxiety around our hearts. And then we begin to assume that God really only wants to spend time with the super Christians who have read their Bibles every day and the super Christians who never did miss a moment of prayer and the super Christians who never did talk to their wives in an unpleasing manner and we just assume that God would rather have nothing to do with us sometimes these thoughts go like this I mean God's this really important person and I feel like a failure so why bother I mean God wants to be God wants people to pray but but not only that but I don't even like prayer like, some of the guilt gets down to this. Like, uh, not only have I not been great at some point, but God wants people to pray, and if I'm being really, really honest, I don't even like prayer, and that makes me feel guilty. So what does that say about me? Great, I'm this one person who doesn't like the stuff that God seems to be into, and we have nothing in common, so why bother? 
See, if we're going to talk about prayer, you have to have an honest conversation about guilt. Let me tell you something about guilt. Guilt can start prayer, but it can never sustain it. Some of us will start prayer because of guilt, but will never continue. Guilt will never, ever sustain you. It can start things. It can never sustain them. Guilt can never, ever, ever build a tent of meeting. Bigger than that, there's nothing about you that God doesn't already know, and he's already declared in his son Jesus that he likes you. So let's just begin to give it up. Can I tell you something this morning? God doesn't just love you. He likes you. And the thing that's changed my life more than anything else that I know in Jesus is this. Not just that he loves me, but he likes me. Because liking someone is totally different. Especially when you live life with God for a while. One of the things you get to realize, especially if you dip your toes into the scripture or you become theologically interested a little bit, you realize God loves people. And it's almost this idea that he has to love people because it's what he's supposed to do because he's God. But then you discover that he actually likes people. And that's something different. We can let go. God has decided beforehand that in his son Jesus, not only does he love you, but he actually likes you. We'll never, ever, ever build a tent of meeting with a foundation of guilt. And at the the end of this meeting, there's probably some people who just need to come and let God touch that place that feels so nervous, so flinching, so anxious, and so filled with guilt. Probably the second reason that we struggle to pray, probably the second reason we struggle to pray is because many of us feel like it's boring. Let's just be honest here for a moment. How many of you have ever felt like prayer stinks? It's just boring. I have. Apparently, this room is filled with super Christians this morning. One of the other things that, that really hinders a sense of meeting with God and being able to sustain a life of prayer is the fact that we just feel like it's boring. Like we feel like we're just staring at the ceiling or we feel like we're just babbling. We don't even know what to pray. After a while, we don't even know what to pray. Uh, we pray and after three minutes, we run out of things on our list. Anybody in here ever done that? You pray, and and you're like, man, I'm going to be a prayer person. And then you pray for everything you can possibly imagine, and it's like three minutes, and you're like, I was hoping to pray for an hour, and now you're like, bored. And it feels like we just pray the same stuff over and over and over, and you get sick and tired of hearing your own freaking voice say the same words over and over, and you're like, I'm bored. I'm like, I'm bored with myself. I'm bored with God, I'm bored with this room, and I'm bored with prayer. And the repetition makes us feel like this hamster that's on this wheel that's running really, really hard but getting nowhere. Anybody ever done the hamster on a wheel prayer thing? Like you're running hard, but you're getting nowhere. How many of you understand that if you run hard and get nowhere, you will quit? The wheel always wins. If you're on on the hamster wheel, you need to understand this. The hamster never wins. The wheel always wins. It's like the scenery of our prayers never change and we just get bored and then getting bored makes us feel guilty. (laughs) See how this works? You see the circle here? Yeah, the scenery of our prayers never change and then we get bored and then after we get bored we feel guilty. Then we're doubly screwed and we're never going to pray again. Not only that, but, but, but people talk about God like he's the best thing in the universe. 
And we're like, if he's the best thing in the universe, then why is he so darn boring? Really? I think these are some of the questions that we need to ask God. If you're the best thing in the universe, why are you so boring? Some people in the room are like very nervous. They're thinking, they're thinking, they're thinking a lightning bolt's going to come out of the ceiling. Look, if God can't answer these questions, we have no hope. We have no hope. Yeah, sometimes our rhetoric about God doesn't match our experience. Like we read, we read these C.S. Lewis books, and then, then you get in the room, and you begin to pray, and you're like, man, I, there ain't, there's not a lion, a witch, a wardrobe. There's no Aslan around. This guy's boring. And here's the really, really great news. I've got great news for everybody in the room who's going to give their lives to some prayer. Uh, The great news this morning from Pastor Adam is this, that everyone who prays and everyone who gives their attention to building a tent of meeting lifestyle will eventually get bored. Good news, you're going to get bored. And here's why. Here's why you're eventually going to get bored. Or here's what boredom really means. And we we need to have an honest discussion about what boredom really, really means. Part of what boredom really means is this, is that you and I have trained ourselves to enjoy other things more. Do you remember the first time you went out and had sushi? Do you remember the first time you went out and had sushi? Everybody's ordering all this raw fish, all these raw slices of tuna on maybe a little bit of a little bit of rice, and they're throwing some wasabi and they're throwing soy sauce on it, and you're sitting in the quarter eating teriyaki chicken. <laughs> and how do you feel? Guilty. That's how you feel. You feel guilty. You feel like you feel filled with shame. Everyone is there enjoying sushi and you've got teriyaki chicken. You feel like a three-year-old. You know? Everyone's sophisticated. Everyone's having a great time. Everyone is, is, is just enjoying these delectable raw treats from the ocean. And you're eating a chicken like slathered in teriyaki sauce with the children. And you feel with sh- you're just filled with shame. And then finally someone says, you know, it really is good. And they hand you a, like, they hand you a little spicy tuna roll. And you, you, know, you dip it in the soy sauce with great trepidation. And, and you put it in your mouth. And there's just this feeling of dread that enters your whole body. And you just make yourself swallow it. Not because you're enjoying it, but because just the guilt in the room is... <laughs> And on the inside, you tell yourself, never again. (laughs) But what you don't know is that one moment changed you. And your palate got expanded. Your palate got expanded. You didn't know it. You didn't even enjoy it. And in the process of not enjoying it, 
your palate gets expanded into a territory that you didn't even know you liked. And in the moment, you actually might not even enjoy it. But then one day, your friends say, hey, let's go for sushi. And you don't want to go necessarily, but you do want to be with them. And so you relent so that you can have friends. And you show up. <laughs> and you show up and you have, you have the teriyaki chicken again. And you are filled with guilt and shame. And everyone else is eating delectable raw treats from the ocean. And someone hands you a spicy tuna roll and you put it in your mouth and you don't hate it. Can I tell you something about prayer? Prayer is sushi. Prayer is dry wine. And prayer is raw oysters. By the way, I just told you. I just described prayer as the best stuff in the universe. But no one who begins drinking wine likes it dry. Everybody wants it sweet. And by the way, sweet wine will eventually kill you. And nobody who picks up a raw oyster necessarily loves it the first time. But that second and that third time, something switches. And by the fifth time, it's all you want. See, part of what boredom means in prayer, one of the things... One of the reasons that prayer is hard is because we get bored, but what the boredom really means is that we've just trained ourselves to like some other things. Prayer is the reorientation of the palate, of the soul, back towards God. And that might take a minute. Can I tell you something? It's okay. It's okay. If it takes you a minute, it's okay. If it takes you five years, it's okay. If it takes you ten years, it's okay. There's no reason to be guilty. There's no reason to be filled with shame. If you need a little teriyaki sauce on your prayer, if you need to cut your dry wine with something a little sweet for a few years, go ahead. God ain't mad. See, most of us have grown up on spiritual apple juice and Kit Kats. Well, we have. We have. We've basically done church like it's, uh, you know, a VBS meeting where we have sound and light pumped into us at a million miles an hour. And, you know, if, if something doesn't hold our attention for one millisecond, we give up on it. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. I'm just saying you can't live like that. You can go to a rave, but you can't live at a rave. Yeah. So prayer is the changing of our appetites. Third reason it's hard to pray is just distraction. This room has been filled with distraction. I've been handling it wonderfully. (laughs) Somebody needs to give me a raise. Between all these babies and getting up and shutting that door back there, I deserve a flipping raise. I've been giving you the word of God, unconcentrated. See, distraction, distraction actually hinders us in prayer. We, we struggle because we're just so distracted. Everything's shouting for our attention, our appetites, our schedules, our friends, our kids. I, our kid, this is really great. I really love it when college kids tell me they're busy. I'm like, that's cute. That's cute. When college kids tell me they're busy... I have a standard response. You are freer than you'll ever be for the rest of your life. Get a couple businesses, a church, and four kids and come back and talk to me about being busy. 
But the point remains that distraction can really, really hinder us to live a life of prayer. And, and there's not a distraction that's any bigger than the little distractions that's sitting in our pockets right now, our little iPhone friends. Have you guys noticed this? There's always another push notification coming to you. Someone just liked your status. Someone favorited your tweet. Someone you don't like. Someone you don't know liked your Instagram picture. Someone texted you. Then someone else texted you again. You just got three emails from Crate and Barrel. And someone sent you a Facebook message and it just goes on and on and on. It never stops. It's this new thing. It's this new thing. See, some things are unchanging, and then sometimes the things that are unchanging show up in new forms. Uh, there has never been a group of people alive in the history of the world who is as distracted as we are right now. Right now. And, and uh, this is actually having profound effects on our own psychology and internal culture of our hearts. It's having a profound effect profound effect. Uh, scientists are already realizing that our short-term memories are evaporating, and one of the reasons our short-term memories are evaporating is because you and I know somehow, some way, deep, deep inside on the, the most primitive parts of our brain, we know that we don't have to remember things because our phones remember them for us, and we're losing some of our human capacity. And, and so what it even means to be a human is going to shift. It's actually even going to change our DNA. And some of the guys who are on the leading edge of like of a, a theory, like medical theory and scientific theory, say that within a, a hundred years or two hundred years, that there could be some evolutionary processes that kick in that could radically change what it means to be a human being. Those little things in our pockets that we love so much that we love so much, they're actually keeping us not just from a life of prayer, but in many ways from being a human, you know? And by the way, I've got one, and I'm not giving it up. Everyone, just take out your phone right now. No, for real, go ahead, take out your phone. This will be fun. Everybody have their phone? Look at it. Look at it. Everybody got it? Look at it. Now repeat after me. My precious. <laughs> I didn't hear you say it. I mean, like, I need to hear you say it. My precious. We're just, we're slowly becoming little golems. The earth is, in 500 years, the earth is going to be filled with 7 billion golems. We're going to live in our own little caves. I, and you know what's weird about our phones? We instinctively know that these suckers are a problem and we try to get away from them and then our phones start talking to us. Have you ever, have you ever set your phone down and you're like, you know what, I'm going to set my phone down I'm just going to enjoy some alone time, right? You set it down and you're just being alone or whatever. You're sitting in a room and you're sitting in a room and like two minutes go by and then three minutes go by and somewhere around minute number four, you hear your phone. Adam, 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 Adam pick me up! Pick me up. Look at me. Look at Does your phone do that? It does do that. Yeah, your phone starts talking to you. Adam, Adam, pick me up. Touch me. Touch me. You know the spot. Touch me. I got to reading. I got to reading yesterday. The average person unlocks their phone 110 times a day, 
And some people, some people top out at over 900 times a day. Now, okay, look, okay, here's the deal. Let's think about this for a moment. If you unlock, if the average person is unlocking their phone 110 times a day, and if some people are topping out at over 900 times a day, if you do that times seven days in a week, times 30 days in a month, times 12 months a year, what's happening? Let's just talk here for a second. How many of you, how many of you, how many of you have ever decided to sit down and read your Bible or to pray? And three or four minutes into trying to read your Bible or to pray, you, you just you pick up your phone and you begin to look at things that are happening on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and what's on Craigslist for sale. Yeah. See, distraction is really going to play a part in who we are. What's funny about these little guys is this. What's funny is, is that these are little portals into the wider world and they're connecting devices and they're doorways into a certain kind of freedom. But these little guys that are portals and connecting devices and, and doorways into a certain kind of freedom, they actually become masters and they imprison us with distraction. Isn't it weird? It's, it's such a weird thing. See... I just filtered something out that's utterly <laughs> brilliant and terrible. <laughs> See, prayer is not just the opposite of distraction. Prayer is not just focus. Prayer is ultimately being. And the text this morning that we read says that Moses went outside the camp to meet with God. I, there is nothing more the scriptures are alive with a message to us. Like if we want to meet with God, one of the first things you have to do is get outside the camp. I mean, God's everywhere all the time, but we're not. And it's really funny. Sometimes, sometimes in order to get outside the camp, we need to lay our phones and our 2,000 Facebook friends down and keep them out. You know? Distraction is a really big deal. And, and this is not meant to make anybody feel guilty. Like God ain't angry. But if we're going to learn how to live with them, if we're going to learn how to live with them, we need to take this, this thing seriously. Moses set the tent up outside the camp. You had to go out away from people. Does that mean that people are bad? No, people are great. And in fact, if you go and live your life in the tent of meeting, you'll love the people that you left even more. You know? Some people read that as like, oh, great. See, now I have a scripture that tells me that I can be a big jerk that doesn't like people. <laughs> That's typically what we do. I don't like people anyway. No, that's not what it means. It means sometimes you just have to get away from the noise in order to enter in with God. Another reason we struggle to pray is because it just feels weak. This is where we have to get really honest. It feels really weak. And this weak feeling has a couple of variants. Uh, number one, some of our problems seem really huge and we bring them to God and we begin to give them voice and we begin to ask for help and there in the silence with our words hanging in the ether, we just feel pathetic and weak like this. For instance, my dad has cancer and I'm in this room talking to an invisible God that I can't hear. 
I don't know, am I the only person who's ever experienced this? Like your problems are very big, they're very present, they're very in your face, and then you go to begin to pray about it, and it just feels pathetic. Kind of like, I don't know how I'm going to pay for my student loans, and here I am staring at the ceiling. Or my kids are insane, they're completely nuts, and I'm in the bedroom talking to myself. The feelings of weakness make it hard to pray. Another variant, another variant on this feeling of weakness is that our rhetoric with God is oftentimes so big and awe-inspiring that it crushes the experience of our prayer life. Like if God is awesome, then why is talking to him so lame? And if God is powerful, then why is being with him so weak? And if God is wonderful, then why am I still depressed when we hang out? See, these feelings of weakness, they really hinder prayer. And then, then right when you're in that spot of feeling really weak about your prayers and really in need of a God who's strong, you meet a pragmatist. These people are the worst. You've got an issue and you've been praying about it, you tell the pragmatist, and then they come off with some line that goes something like this. Well, you keep praying about it and I'll do something about it. You met that person? It's a bummer. As if prayer wasn't doing something. As if it already didn't feel useless. But here's the good news. The good news is that God has this thing for weakness and hiddenness. And he likes to work through weakness to bring about great victory and displays of power. When Israel was in a massive heap of trouble, he didn't go out and look for the strongest guy. He went out and found the smallest clan, read for that, the most pathetic family. And then he went out and found the most scared guy from the most pathetic family who was in the bottom of a wine press threshing wheat because he was afraid someone was going to steal it from him. You guys remember the story of Gideon? And he takes Gideon and he wins a major victory. Gideon takes 300 guys just 300 guys, and he goes and he stands up against an army of 145,000. God has this thing about weakness. He loves weakness. He loves things that are pathetic. He loves things that are small. He loves things that are hidden. He has a way of taking ridiculous odds and turning them on their heads. If you feel weak in prayer, great! You're probably actually entering in. Like if you feel really pathetic in prayer, if you feel like what you have to say is of almost no consequence against the realities that are standing against you, wonderful. You can count on this. God is in it. He is working. Eight pound, eight ounce, baby Jesus. I can't get over this stuff. Are you kidding me? Jesus didn't have to come as a baby. He could have come as a 30-year-old man. There was nothing in the Bible that contractually obligated God to come as a tiny baby. But he came as a baby, and if he did, it's because he wanted to. And if he wanted to, he had a purpose, and his purpose is this. He likes small, ignorable weakness. This is also why those who persist in prayer often become genuinely humble people. People who persist in prayer, they become humble people. It has a way of stripping our confidence and outward strength and numbers and force. Chariots and horses. And finally this morning, it's hard to pray because 
Everybody in the room has experienced unanswered prayer. Oof. Sometimes it's hard to pray because there's so many other prayers that are unanswered. There are a few things that encourage like answered prayer and there are a few things that hurt like unanswered prayer. So for instance, in my time as a believer and especially in my time as a pastor, I have seen terminally ill people recover fully because someone prayed for them. I'm talking about people who are on death's door I've seen them recover fully because someone prayed for them. And then I have laid my hands on people that I were absolutely sure were going to live, and I went and did their funeral. It's the worst. I'll tell you a really honest story. You guys, uh, many of you in the room remember Jerry Bennett. Do you guys remember Jerry Bennett? He's one of the town fathers. Uh, and some of you guys in the room don't know this name, but there's a guy named Jerry Bennett. And he's got a business in town that's still in town and it's providing for all these families. It's a beautiful thing. It's amazing. Town father, loved Jesus with his whole life. Jerry was as generous as anybody I've ever met, ever. Like, I met him when I was like 14 years old and he continually looked for hidden ways to bless me and prosper me. Anyway, Jerry gets really sick. He gets cancer. Joe Hurchin and I go over and pray for him. And when we pray for him, all I can tell you is that the wind of the Holy Spirit started to blow in the room. And I'm not talking about a metaphoric wind. I'm talking about an actual perceivable wind was around us. So much so that Joe and I were absolutely convinced that guy is getting better. Four days later, he was dead. I don't get it. I don't get it. And if somebody tries to tell you they get it, don't listen to them. <laughs> Unanswered prayer can be a big hindrance into loving God with your whole life. Here's the deal. If you pray for people, if you pray for things and situations, lots of stuff is going to move, get better, and you're going to see unbelievable miracles. And if you pray for people, lots of stuff isn't going to happen and there will be disappointment. Count on it. It can be gut-wrenching. We're really conditioned to things that work and things that don't work. We use the one and discard the others. And we do the math in all kinds of directions. When things don't go right, we do the math in all kinds of directions. There's either something wrong with me, there's something wrong with the method, or there's something wrong with God. And when you get to the last one, it gets really bitter. See, prayer makes us face the reality that there's an already and a not yet in the kingdom. And people typically tend to fall on one side or the other. There are some people where everything is not yet, and that all the good stuff in God is reserved for after you die and you go to heaven. Like, there'll never be anything really great until you die and you go to heaven. And those, you know, they don't really pray for people. In fact, healing's not real. If anybody gets healed, it's probably a devil. It's like the work of the devil here to deceive us and to drag us into hell by the most cruel means possible. You know, you've met those people, right? Like, everything is not yet. Uh, everything now is just suffering and bitterness, and, and then one day you die, and then everything gets better. And then there's other people who everything is now. Like Jesus has been uh, resurrected and he's ascended and he's kicked off his kingdom reign and everything, everything is, is now. Everything is now. And can I tell you something? Both of those extremes are actually cruel. Because what do you do? 
What do you do? Like some people get better, some people don't. Well, here's the truth, church. The truth is it's a really complex mix of both. God's kingdom is already and it's not yet. Anything could happen, but nothing has to happen. Anything could happen, but nothing has to happen. And, 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 and here's the deal. If this were not reality, we would not need faith. I want you to think about this for a second. If God's kingdom were not yet, absolutely not yet, you would not fe- need faith. Why believe for anything? It's all later. And if God's kingdom were absolutely already, 100% all of it already, it would not require faith because it's already. But here we are living with faith, hope, and love. The kingdom is already. I've seen too many people healed and set free. I've seen too many broken lives mended. I've seen God's power put on display. In fact, uh, recently, one of my friends... Jonathan got his shoulder healed right up here at the vineyard. And what's really funny about it, he's our guy who's going to plant a vineyard in Bowling Green. What's really hysterical about it is he grew up a pastor's kid and he's never been healed in his entire life. Never been healed in his entire life. He's prayed for people and seen healing. Every time he gets prayer, he usually gets worse is what he told me. And then he came up here and a couple young guys prayed for him with a shoulder that's been hurting him for over eight months and it instantly got healed. And it's not bothered him since. See, God's kingdom is already, in some profound way, it is already. The good stuff is breaking in right now. It's unbelievable. And at the same time, God's kingdom is not yet. I've done too many funerals. If it were absolutely all already, there wouldn't be any more funerals. I've buried friends. I've buried friends. I've buried friends who loved Jesus and had lots of other people who had faith around them that were praying. Don't give me this more faith garbage. That's cruel. It's cruel. It's not yet. Planned Parenthood is killing babies with little regard for life. Don't tell me God's kingdom is all already. Planned Parenthood is selling body parts from little unborn babies with little regard for life. And I don't care if the video's been doctored or not. That is absolutely insanity. It's eight minutes of pure terror. Not only that, but nine African-American people were shot in cold blood at a prayer meeting, and the only reason they were shot is because they were black. God's kingdom is not fully yet here. And just this week, four Marines were shot in Chattanooga only because they had on a uniform. Come on. See, and as such, prayer is an entering into all things rather than escape. It is incarnation, if you want to put it that way. It's the place where spirit and matter meet. See, what the world needs is people who are entering into the swirl, and what the world needs is believers who are entering into the tension without losing heart. And you will be tempted to lose heart. But don't lose heart. God's kingdom is already and not yet. And the good news is this. The really good news is that everything that's broken is going to receive the glory of resurrection. Everything that's broken is going to receive the glory of resurrection. Some of that may show up early. Some of it may show up later. But we have confidence in this, that everything that's broken, everything that's dead, everything that's ruined is going to receive the glory of resurrection. Everything. Paul says, ears not heard, eyes not seen, mind is not conceived of the good things that God has prepared for those who love him. I mean, that's the anchor in my soul. And that's why I don't give up praying. Because I know, even if it works, and even if it doesn't work, even on the day it doesn't work, I know that God has something really good planned. 
Sometimes when it doesn't work, you just want to give up on God. I've told many of you this. Three or four years ago, Heather's first cousin got strangled to death on a morning run with her sister while she's pregnant. Three kids already on the outside and one on the inside. Strangled to death in broad daylight in Kentucky. And on those moments, you'd think, I'm just done with God. Like, this is crazy. And here's the truth. The truth is, eye is not seen, ears not heard. No mind has ever conceived of the good things that God has prepared for those who love him. Everything that's dead, everything that's ruined, everything that's broken is going to be raised up with glory. And what this means is ultimately this. What it means is ultimately this. That no matter how brutal the defeats can be and no matter how hard the hard times can be, God saw it before it ever happened and he did the math like this. He created a risky world. The world is not safe, you all, but it is good. In order to be good, it has to be risky. So God creates a risky world where terrible things can happen, where we can be bitterly disappointed. And he has created a risky world knowing that people were going to sometimes choose radically terrible things. And God has done the math in eternity like this. Take all of the terrible things and put them on one shelf. Put all of the terrible things that have ever happened on one shelf, all the disappointments, all the brokenness, all the hurt, and all the pain. In eternity, God has done the math like this. He looks at that shelf and he says, somehow, because of the amount of goodness and for my, because of my ability to work out all things good to those who love me, because of my ability to raise dead things up and because of my ability to bring about goodness out of brokenness and for my ability to, to give resurrection life and glory out of terrible hurt, God says, it's worth it. Somehow, it's worth it. And this is why we don't lose heart. We're resurrection people. Like, we might not win now, but we will win later. I promise you this. Christians are not avoiders. Some people want to create theologies of avoidance where everything has to be perfect now. I'm telling you, Christians are not avoiders. We're go-throughers. Jesus went through. He didn't go around it. He went through. And because of that, you and I can go through. And we're not going to give up in prayer. We're not going to give up in prayer. When people get healed, we're going to rejoice. And if we bury a friend, we're not going to stop because we know the power of resurrection has not been altered one iota. He's going to raise them up. This is why it's hard sometimes, but it's why we don't lose heart. And I'm out of time. Hmm. I feel the kindness of the Lord in this room. Oh, my gosh. I got snot coming out of my nose, and I feel the kindness of Jesus in this room. Mm. Man, goodness gracious. Can I tell you all something? I just love the Lord. I just love the Lord. I've known the Lord almost my whole life, and I love him more now than I used to. This has nothing to do with my message, but I feel like I needed to tell y'all this all of a sudden. I just love the Lord. I think he's awesome. I just love Jesus. He does surprising things. He doesn't work by my calendar, but he does amazing things. He's always on the move. He's always working. He's always somewhere. He's always got something up his sleeve. I just love the Lord. It makes you happy. It makes you happy. It makes you cry, too, but it makes you happy. Mm. Let's do this. If you're on the ministry team this morning, why don't you come on up?
whoever you are in this place. And if we could have uh, everybody else just uh, stand up this morning, we're going to pray a little prayer of benediction and be about it. Lord, we love you in this room this morning. We think you're wonderful. God, we just declare this morning that we want to be a tent of meeting people. God, we want to be people who have rhythms of meeting you. God, we want to be people who have a lifestyle of friendship with Jesus and face-to-face encounters with the Father. God, we want to be people who are not overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. God, we want to be people who do not lose heart to go to you. And so even now, God, we just, we just take authority over things like guilt. God, we take authority over guilt, and we take authority over boredom, and we take authority over unanswered prayer, and we take authority over all these things, God, all these things that just keep us from loving you and giving ourselves unreservedly. God, we take authority over those. And Father, we ask that you would give us, that you would give us grace. Like so much, God, that you would give us the grace that empowers us to live a different kind of way. God, we just, we draw on the blood that flows from Emmanuel's veins. We draw on it, God. We ask that you would give us the grace that empowers a different kind of being. And we pray this in the name of Jesus, who is wonderful. Amen. Amen. Hey, if you need prayer for anything this morning, you come on up. We got some people who want to pray for you. Otherwise, give somebody a high five and a hug. Thank you again for stopping by the podcast at the Vineyard Church in Campbellsville, Kentucky. If you'd like to keep up with what's happening here at the Vineyard, you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Until next time, peace to you.